The Apostle Peter spends a great deal of time in his first letter exhorting Christians to endure present suffering by setting their minds on future hope by faith. And in doing this, Christians follow in the footsteps of Christ, who himself entrusted his life to his Father in the midst of unjust suffering. So the connection is to follow Christ is to walk the path that he walked, to suffer and then be lifted up in glory. But future hope does not replace present faithfulness. It's not a passive action. Christians must live distinct from the world because they are sojourners and exiles, people waiting for a final hope in a present hostile world. And the primary way that the church distinguishes herself from the world is in our morality, in the ethical behavior that we exhibit. We don't engage our sinful passions, but rather we pursue holiness. Holiness being a, a life that is set apart in devotion to God. So we don't limit our perspective to the here and now, but rather we live our lives in light of God's final judgment. And that's a really key point, that God will one day put everything to right. And the question is, when he does, will we be those people who are found in the right or not? And so to be a Christian is to be part of God's new world in the present, in the midst of a dark age. It's to live distinctly, to live holy lives, set apart lives as sojourners and exiles. And we do all of this with Christ as our example, who died and rose again, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is Understanding First Peter. In this section of First Peter, chapters 3, verse 8 to 4, verse 6, we get three anchors of hope to encourage Christians who suffer under persecution. The first anchor is a promise of blessing. The second is an example of suffering. And the third and final one is a promise of judgment. So we're going to look at each one of those, a promise of blessing, an example of suffering, and a promise of judgment as we go through this passage. So let's look at verses 8 to 17 of chapter 3, a promise of blessing. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter commands the church to imitate Christ by possessing a unified mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, and a humble mind. Each of these demonstrates the selflessness of Christ, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a slave. That's Philippians 2, 6-7. He didn't revile when he was reviled, and neither should we. He didn't return evil for evil. Even when he suffered evil, neither should we. 
Christ's submissive obedience and sacrificial life brings about the blessing of resurrection, and we will share in that as we follow in his steps. So when you think about a unity of mind, it doesn't mean that everybody thinks the same way, but that we have a common cause. We're united by Christ, that we, that we think in, in terms of how do we keep the unity of the body intact? How do we center around the truth? Sympathy means to suffer alongside someone. So when one member of the body suffers, we suffer. When they rejoice, we rejoice. Brotherly love, there's this new familial relation that we have with others who are in Christ. A tender heart is the opposite of a hard heart. You're not cynical. You're not biting. You're sober-minded, but you're also compassionate, right? And you have a humble mind. You're not proud. You're not conceited with your own knowledge. You're not built up so much in your intellectual mind that you think you know it all, but rather you are humble. Each of these, again, is how the church reflects the character of Christ. And Peter actually quotes from Psalm 34 about how the righteous receive the blessing of good days. And the testimony uh, shows that if you keep your, the integrity of your words, there's a blessing with that. And this is a really fascinating thing to think about because, again, Peter's talking to people who don't feel blessed. They're being ostracized. They're being cast out of their communities. They're being called you know, all kinds of different names and, and facing a lot of social pressures to conform to their hostile culture. So how is it that speaking the truth and not being deceptive and having a good witness and yet it's bringing you persecution, how is that a blessed life? And there's a little bit of logic of the Beatitudes that the, the blessed life is flipped upside down, that in the end, those who mark themselves out by proper speech, by good conduct, are those who will inherit the blessed life that God promises when Christ returns. So this is a future orientation, a future anchor. In the end, even if in the present you receive negative consequences for your righteousness, at the end of the day, the, the ruler of all, whose ear is open to the prayers of the just and whose face is against the righteous, he will adjudicate everything. He will set things right. So wait for that day. Even though your present circumstances may seem like you're not living a blessed life, one day that will be true. And that future hope actually helps you live in the present with joy. You can say, I am living the blessed life because God is on my side. He knows what I'm suffering. He knows what's going on. I can keep my integrity intact knowing that this is the joyful life, a life that is filled with sorrow for righteousness sake. He's, he's challenging our notions of what a good life is. We think a, a good life is one with no obstacles where everything comes easily. But then you look at Christ's blessed life and it was filled with hardships and trials and yet he maintained his integrity. He trusted the Lord. That's the true blessed life. So we have to have that challenge in us for us to understand this passage. Christ experienced the blessed life of the resurrection, but only through the crucible of suffering. And that's the example for us as well, right? So there, there's this promise of blessing that, that when you are zealous for what is good and you suffer for righteousness sake, that actually is a blessed status to be in. Not that being persecuted itself is being blessed, but that the totality of it is showing that you are part of those people who will receive the great inheritance. And that can infect your present situation with a great joy and a great hope. But again, this is not passive. God continues to call us to faithfulness in the present. In other words, he's talking about you're, you're actually suffering because of a proactive approach to life, right? You think about the Prior passages are all about submission, submission to the government, submission to masters, uh, wives to husbands. And then you wonder, is there ever a time to not do what your person in authority says? 
And here, I think we get this testimony where he says, always be prepared to give a defense, an apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics, a defense of the faith, to anyone who asks you for your hope. Now, why are they asking you for your hope? Well, it's because you're suffering unjustly and you are not reviling in return. It is your, your faithful endurance under unjust suffering that becomes a witness and people are going to ask questions. Why do you have this ability to remain faithful under pressure? And that's the opening for you to say, because I have the hope of Christ. Because I know that God, I'm living my life before a God who is just and I'm entrusting my life to him. So those opportunities actually arise because of your faithful suffering. And you got to be ready before that moment to be able to give a reasoned defense of your faith. And there's this call to an intellectual life. Christianity is not foolishness. It's not blind faith. It's reasonable. It doesn't mean that you have to be a philosophical genius or you have to memorize 10,000 arguments, but it does mean that we are called to cultivate a sound mind, to understand theology, to understand how to speak about Christ and the resurrection and why that is our hope. Can you give a defense for the hope that is in you? Do you understand what the resurrection means? Right? And, and I think Peter is challenging us to say, have good behavior, but also communicate in words what is behind that good behavior. And he says, if you do this, you're going to do it with gentleness and respect, right? Since we have this future hope that's assured for us, we shouldn't live in fear, right? A confident hope allows us to speak the truth without wavering, but it also allows us not to be this anxious, reactive mess, we can speak with gentleness and respect. We have a confidence. We know that we can't change the minds of unbelievers, but that our faithfulness is just simply speaking true words before the face of God. Think about that. In every conversation, you're speaking before the face of God. So when you are given an opportunity to witness for him, you're not really even doing it for the person in front of you. You're doing it for the glory of God. You're speaking true words before his face. And then it's up to God to really use that to change the hearts of the people. But as far as you're concerned, you have a confidence that, look, that's what you're in charge of. And it's amazing how much words matter. You think about the book of James, words direct the course of your life. And so to honor Christ's Lord as holy, which is interesting, uh, Peter's actually citing from Isaiah chapter eight, where it talks about honoring the Lord as holy, right? And fearing him above all. And Peter here uh, replaces God or the Lord with Jesus, meaning he clearly sees that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is the one true God. And he's saying that the, the antidote to fear of man is fear of God, to recognize that, that God is the third party in every conversation you have and that you want to represent him correctly. And that means you've got to have a reason. You've got to explain who he truthfully is, even if that brings about unjust suffering. Because again, that is what Christ did. That's his example. It reflects how Christ lived his life. So that gets to the next section, an example of suffering, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is one of the most difficult passages to interpret. And I don't know if I'm right about this, but I think we can glean a few key insights by reading this. Christ, the righteous one, he suffered for the unrighteous. That's the gospel. And the result brings about our salvation. We're brought to God. And if God proposed 
or purposed his unjust suffering for good, will he not do the same for us? Right? There's the hope there. Now, again, here's the difficult section. Okay, <laughs> what, is, what does it mean? He, he's put to death in the flesh. Okay, that's the crucifixion. Made alive in the spirit. Okay, people debate what that means. But somehow he's made alive in the spirit, or by the spirit perhaps, and he goes and proclaims to the spirits in prison. Now I'm going to give you my best take at this. So we have a couple details. There's these spirits in prison. We know that they formerly did not obey. They were disobedient at some time. That time period was in the days of Noah when he was preparing an ark. So if we go back to the days of Noah, we have in Genesis 6, the sons of God, who are these fallen angels who are procreating with women. They create the Nephilim. It's all kind of weird stuff there, but they're, they're sort of the, the pinnacle of human corruption, rather evil in the world. They're corrupting humanity. And they were disobedient in the days of Noah. Now here, it looks like they're in some kind of underworld situation. And if you read in Jude or in uh, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, I believe, he talks about fallen angels in chains waiting for judgment. And then he mentions Noah later on in 2 Peter. So if you want to put that together, it seems like Christ, after his death, goes to the underworld where these fallen angels, these sons of God, right, these spirits in prison are waiting for their final judgment. And he goes and proclaims a message to them. And I think this message is the victory of the gospel. I don't think it's a, it's a call to be saved. I don't think he saves them in the end. I think he's coming and saying, I have died. I'm about to rise again. And I'm about to ascend above all powers. And therefore, you are wrong. Right? I, this is the vindication of Noah. One thing you can think about is when Noah's telling everybody a flood's coming, no one's listening to him. And the vindication now shows up where Christ shows up and says, look, Noah was right. He was the righteous one. Now, how does that apply to what Peter's talking about? Remember, this isn't just Peter going, I'm going to just throw in this weird theological thing that has nothing to do with the rest of my letter. His letter is about being set apart and enduring the mocking of others, knowing that you'll be vindicated in the end. Noah was set apart. He was mocked, but he was vindicated in the end. The flood came. It ended the old world of darkness, the prior world, and it brought about a new world. And then that's why he says, Peter says, baptism corresponds to this. It's a pattern. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt. It's not this magical thing, but rather baptism represents a good conscience before God. Baptism represents that you've been born again, that you have died to the old world through the flood and risen out to a new life through the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is our ark, that he plunges into the waters of death and rises out in his resurrection, and he takes us with him if we are in him. And that's what our baptism represents. And so this has an ongoing implication for us that when we think about our identity, we go, I'm not going to go back to the ways of the old world of my old self. I've been baptized, right? Luther used to look back to his baptism for his assurance to remember who he is. He has died to that old way of sin. He's going to live a new way because of the resurrection of Christ. And by the way, if you do that, you're going to be mocked like like Noah was, right? But one day, baptism is going to reveal, or rather, baptism marks you out in the present as you are the righteous people. And it's like, well, I don't feel like the righteous people. Everybody's mocking me and throwing me out of synagogues, and they're cursing us. He says, no, don't worry. Baptism is the seal that you are God's people. And on the last day, that will be revealed publicly. That just as Jesus vindicated Noah and and, and declared victory over the fallen angels— He will declare victory over the whole world of sin and darkness. And we who are incorporated into Christ, represented by our baptism, will be revealed as the righteous ones, as the ones who are in the right. So hold on to that faith. 
Because Jesus Christ, not only did he rise from the dead, but he rose again to ascend into the right hand of, of the Father in, in the seat of highest authority over above all angels, authorities, and powers. Meaning Christ has elevated us above all those things. Therefore, when we live out our baptism, right, we get baptized and what we do is by faith, we live out the truth of that baptism. We no longer live the old life, we live the new life. We don't live in our old creation, but as new creation. And that's the ethic that Peter commands in this next section, where he gives a promise of judgment in chapter four, verses one to six. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here's that pattern again. So you're a Gentile, you converted out of paganism, you no longer identify with that world anymore. In fact, he kind of puts some distance. You converted Gentiles. Gentiles are now seen as, as something other than you. You can, you can say, don't do what the Gentiles want to do. There's a disassociation from your past identity. And so you're hanging out with your Gentile friends. They want to go into all these drunken parties and orgies and, and lawless idolatry. And you go, no. And they're going to be shocked. I'm like, what, what happened to you, man? You got all religious on us. And you're going to have to say no, because I've died to that. I, I no longer live in that. And they're going to malign you. But, but what's the promise? He says, they're going to be judged. Just as the spirits who were rebellious in Noah's time were judged, just as the people around Noah were judged and they didn't listen to him, so too will those who mock you be judged on the last day. Remember, vengeance is the Lord's. You can suffer unjustly because God will set all things right. Right, And so in the present, what you need to do is arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. If Christ suffered, I'm going to suffer. And I think when he says to suffer in this, uh, the flesh means to cease from sin, it's not this magical thing like suffering kills sin, although it does definitely help in your holiness. I think he's saying that if you are identified with Christ, if you suffer like Christ did, then that shows that you are part of the people who have broken their relationship with sin, that you are no longer part of that old creation, but you are part of the new. And that's marked out by the fact that the world is hostile toward you. So actually people's resistance to you is a sign that you are part of this new creation that Christ has brought into the present and God will judge on the last day. But God is gracious, right? Here's this strange last little section where he talks about the gospel being preached to those who are dead. I don't think this actually means that Jesus is preaching to people after they're dead, like there's a way to save people when they're dead or something like that. I think he's meaning that those who have already died, right? They have this eternal hope. They live in the spirit the way God does, right? Because they believe the gospel. So, so you may have loved ones who have died in the faith. And he says, look, they're gonna have the promise of resurrection life too, right? They're gonna have the great hope. So don't fear death, right? They will live the way God does in perfect holiness. And that's the essence of spiritual living. It's a physical life by the power of the Spirit, no longer subject to sin and death. And that's the great hope for those believers who have died, who, who are living now, and who will die in the future. Right? That's the great hope of our present struggle against the flesh. One day that battle is going to end. The holier you get, the more you hate your sin, but the sweeter grace is to you. And all this comes in light of what Christ has done on your behalf. So remember that Christ is our example. If he suffered, we'll suffer. And yet, 
by virtue of our baptism, what that represents. We have died to the old life and we live in the new, but we're going to face persecution like Noah did, but God will vindicate us on the last day. And so that means that we should be ready to give a hope for the hope, or ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, that, that even our unjust suffering is an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel. And also to recognize that when we are maligned for not living our former life, God's going to hold everyone to account, right? And that those who have died have this great living hope, that though they are judged in the flesh, though they, they, though they experience death, which is a penalty that all humans experience, that death is only temporary, that they will live in the spirit. They will live this resurrected life by the power of the spirit, and that will be their great hope. So there's a lot of confusing stuff maybe in this passage, but don't let that scare you. Just sit there with the text, ask questions, and see how it fits into the context. And I think a lot of great insights will come to the surface.